done so already. Uh, if you would turn back in your Bible to Luke chapter 2, that short section of scripture that Adrian read. So it's Luke 2 uh, from verse 1 to verse 7. If you've got that in front of you, we'll look at a few things there. First of all, let's just notice what we see here about the need for God. So that's our first idea, the first heading thing we've got to think about, the need for God. Now, do you see how this begins? Like, it begins, I suppose you would say, with a, almost like a chronological marker. It's like what Luke, the author, does is kind of set the birth of Jesus in the scope world history, doesn't he? Look what he says here. He says, in those days... Caesar Augustus, he issued a decree that a census should be taken. Now, an introduction like that serves to function in a few different ways. One thing it definitely does, though, is give us a sort of sense of the, the grandeur of what's about to take place, doesn't it? I mean, think about it, just as a storyteller, you know, if he's got a very important story to tell, he might say... It took place in the time, such and such. It took place during the reign of so-and-so. Do you see it? Like we're getting a picture of the, the gravity, the weight, the enormity of what is just about to happen. But I don't think that's enough, is it? We can't really just say, okay, Luke mentions a historical event. And then we just go on and look at the rest of the chapter. We've got to think just for a moment, surely, about which historical event this was. So, what is this we're dealing with? Like, what, what is the census that you've got here? Um, well, we know our, our biblical history, I'm sure. Like, if somebody was to say to you, okay, this is taking place in Judah, what do we know about Judah, Judah at this time in history? What would you say about Judah? What do we know about Judah? Well, we know that it was under Roman occupation. Isn't that probably the main thing? Like, we know that it's under foreign control. And at this precise moment in history, what was happening was this sort of massive reorganization project that was taking place in the Roman Empire. It's like Laura's here and Ian here. They both work for London City Mission. London City Mission over the last couple of years has been going through this big restructuring sort of process, right? Well, that was what was happening in the Roman Empire, perhaps on a slightly larger scale in the Roman Empire. Okay, but a huge sort of administration reorganization in the Roman Empire. Now, as part of that, what the authorities, the Roman authorities wanted to do was find out they want to find out more about the land. Like, you can see why that is, can't you? Like, the Romans, they, they come and they conquer Judah, but they don't know anything about Judah. Like, they don't know who's living in this place, man, and, and what do they own? What do these people do? So what is it the authorities get up to? What do they do? They organize a census. Do you see it? They organize a, a register of just who it is that's living in Judah. Are you following me? If so, that all takes us to a bit of a problem here. You see, what you've got in front of you just now in Luke chapter 2 is one of the go-to places for Bible critics. And I don't think we should 
I don't think we should pass over that. We have to address things like this, you know? Like, if you are a secular, you know, a militant, secular, atheist, Bible critic, and you, you've got this, you know, you're desperate to show that there are mistakes in the Bible, where do you go? I'll tell you, one place that people go is here. So what is the apparent mistake that we've got here? I'll tell you what, do this uh, with me. Just look at verse 2. Would you do that? Verse 2. It says that this census took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Quirinius was governor of Syria. Here's the problem with that. Uh, Quirinius was the governor of Syria, but he didn't become the governor of Syria until a couple of years after Jesus was born. So is that a problem? I mean, is this, is this a mistake that we've got by the Holy Spirit? Is that what we're dealing with? Well, no, this can be fairly easily explained if we think about it properly. Now, come on, think about the scale. Think about how large the census was. Just think about how many people had to go back to their hometown and be counted and so forth, right? I mean, this is absolutely massive. So perhaps, here's an idea, perhaps it begun at this point but that it took a couple of years to be completed. Could be that. That's legitimate. What about this? Perhaps it was completed at this point, but that the taxation levels that were the whole point of the census, perhaps they didn't come into effect for another couple of years. I mean, there's a number of different ways that this can be read to, to make perfect in utter sense. And I think what you should hold on to is the author. Who's the author? Well, it's the Holy Spirit, but who's the author? It's Luke. What do we know about him? A man alive. He was a, he was a guy absolutely dedicated to historical accuracy. I mean, see this? This, this isn't a mistake. This isn't an error. But it still leaves us with a question, doesn't it? Like, what does this census mean for us, for you tonight and here? Well, I know that uh, some people who are in front of me just now, you have studied English at uh, at advanced uh, level. You've studied English at college or you've studied English at university. Uh, so you're probably ahead of the game uh, with the rest of us. But every one of us in here knows what a, a metaphor is, don't we? Like we, we also know what an analogy what that is don't we we know what these things are now ask yourself isn't that what we're dealing with here in some way like yes this census is historically accurate but isn't it also a sort of vivid picture of why a savior needed to be born like do you see what i mean here like, isn't God here, isn't he reinforcing for us that Jesus came into the world, into our world that was tarnished by wicked rule? Is that what God's doing? A, a world that is tarnished by corruption. If we think about it, this, this census here surely is a picture of the sin of mankind. Would you, would you do that though? Would you think about it with me? I mean, what we told here, think about how this works. The people of Israel are captive in their own land, aren't they? 
just as, yeah, just as humanity is held prisoner by our own sin. And the people of Israel, what's the deal here? Like they are forced to travel throughout the land just as sin. What's the effect of sin on us? It directs man. It pushes man. It controls man as well, right? And the people of Israel here, what's the problem? They are exploited by the Romans, exploited by a power that is higher and bigger than themselves. Isn't that the word Satan? Isn't he keen to exploit? Doesn't he revel in exploiting us? Do you see it? This Roman census, it is a picture for us of our plight. And so because of that, I honestly think we should rejoice in what we, what we go on to read here. What does God do against the census? What does he do? Who does he send? He sends his son. And, and what is he like? The son. This child be born, what, what will he grow up to be? An entirely different kind of ruler. Isn't that it? Here is one who can rule with mercy, unlike the Romans. Like one with compassion, unlike the Romans. He'll rule with grace. And what will he do? He will go on to lay down his life for his friends. And why? Do you see why? This king has come to set us free. Isn't that it? He's come to redeem us. He's come to liberate us from those chains, to smash them. Friends, what reason I think we have to focus on God this Christmas and worship him? Because look at this. It was against a backdrop of a Roman census that Jesus came into the world. So the need for God. Secondly, second heading to think about just now. Let's think about the providence of God. So three headings tonight. The second one is the providence of God. Now, as we work through this chapter, not only do we learn that there's a census, but we learn that Mary and Joseph were caught up in the census, weren't they? And I suppose you, you could say that we learned something about the relationship here. Um, if you were here this morning, uh, you'll remember that we left things that Joseph had agreed to take Mary as his wife. And then in Matthew's gospel, we learn that he's done that. He's taken Mary as, uh, as his wife. So here, you'll notice that Luke says they're betrothed. But really what I think he's getting at, quite simply and quite bluntly, is that this relationship had not been consummated at this point. We learned something about Mary and Joseph's relationship here. But actually, it's the providence of God. It is the sovereignty of God that I want us to to really think about. If you're a, a film lover, a film buff, and you think to 2004... Maybe you can remember the award season. You maybe remember that the 2004 Oscar Best Picture went to the film Crash. Do you remember the film? Um, directed by a guy with the best name in the world. His name is Paul Haggis. So, for obvious reasons, I think that's a good name. Um, 
and it starred who was in it um, Matt, Dylan, and Sandra Bullock, and Dandy Newton, and a whole host of people. Do you remember the film? Crash. Well, if you do remember the film, you'll remember that it kind of told the story in, in what was quite an unusual way for the time. Like there were, I don't know how many, but several different storylines going on simultaneously. And they were different storylines, so it seemed, and, and they were all over the place. Unrelated storylines, all kind of pretty heavy-going storylines from what I can remember, all set in L.A., I think. But then, right at the end of the film, if you've seen it, you'll remember what happens. That all of those seemingly unrelated storylines, they come together. There's this event at the end, there's a scene at the end where all of these unrelated, seemingly unrelated storylines, they all kind of converge and intertwine. Now hang on a second, isn't that what we've got in Luke chapter 2? Now just think about this with me. It's deliberately short, this portion of scripture. Right, just a few verses that Adrian read. But see in those verses, what have we got? You've got a whole plethora of people like a whole host of Old Testament prophecies and they all come together I mean they all just sort of converge here do you, do you see them? if not just follow in your Bibles think about the personnel who have you got? you have got who's the obvious one to speak of? you've got Mary spoken of in Genesis chapter 3 Right at the beginning of the Bible, she is spoken of. The woman whose seed will go on to crush the serpent's head. Who else have you got here? You've got Mary, you've got Joseph, the great forefather of the uh, Messiah in the Davidic line, spoken of way back in 2 Samuel. Do you see it? They're here. They've been spoken of centuries ago, and they're here. Then, think about the period of history that we're dealing with. What did we say? We said this took place under Roman occupation, didn't we? So all of this takes place when Judah is looking incredibly vulnerable, and then the Messiah comes. Now listen to this. This is Genesis 49. It speaks of a great day ahead when what will happen, when things will look bleak, but that a ruler will rise up, and that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Do you see it? The timing spoken of in Genesis. It's here. It's now. But then most especially, I would ask you to think about the place names. And I don't know if the boys and girls that are in here, if they want to do this. Look at verse 4, boys and girls. If you've got a Bible in front of you, and you follow the names of the places, let me read them out. What is the first name of a place you've got there in verse 4? Isn't it Nazareth? What does, what does Matthew say of the prophets? What does he say? He shall be called a Nazarene. It's here. And what's the next name? Boys and girls, do you see it? It's Galilee. 
spoken of way back in Isaiah chapter 9. has been critical to the Messiah. Okay, then you've got Judah. We've seen that that's spoken of in Genesis. And then we come to it. Boys and girls, do you see where we come to? What's the name of the town? We come to Bethlehem. It's spoken of. And it's spoken of with such clarity way back in Micah chapter 5. Listen to this. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Friends, do you see this? Do you see that all of these great prophecies, they all converge here. Now, do you see the sovereignty of God in that. Do you see what's been happening here? Like God is orchestrating all of biblical history. In fact, he's orchestrating all of human history and orchestrating it to come down to this moment, right now, where Mary and Joseph come into, enter into Bethlehem. Do you see the power and sovereignty of that? If, think about it. If you and I had been there, Friends, imagine that you and I had been in Nazareth. Now we're there, and I pray this, we'd be scratching our heads. Because think about it, we have in front of us a woman who is nearly nine months pregnant. She's in Nazareth. What do we know? We know that her child, the Savior, is supposed to be born miles away (laughs) in Bethlehem. And we're scratching our heads thinking, but how can this possibly occur? And what is God doing? Do you see what God is doing? God, such power, can just quite simply move the whole of the Roman Empire. And he can move their senses. Do you see? He can make Mary have to travel all the way to Bethlehem. Do you see the power of God? Do you see the sovereignty of God here? Friends, I think this should absolutely fill us with encouragement as Christians. You have a God who is in complete control of the universe and everything that happens therein. Isn't it it the case, though, that you lose sight of that? That we lose sight of the sovereign control of God? Isn't it the case that very often we ask the questions that Mary must have been asking? (laughs) You can imagine how this goes down, can't you? door goes and it's Joseph he comes in, he speaks to his, his wife and his sister Mary I, I hate to tell you this but I've just heard there's going to be a census and I'm afraid we're going to have to travel all the way to Bethlehem and he leaves can you imagine what Mary's thinking nine months pregnant and she's thinking but why me and why like this? And why now this is jeopardizing the health of my unborn baby a journey like this? But we see here, for us, just like it was for Mary, that God is working all things for our good. That he isn't just able to do that, he is actually doing that. It isn't a twee saying that we throw about in church. He is actually working, this sovereign God, working all things for the spiritual goods of 
So how about this? What have you got? What have you got planned in the next couple of days? If you're anything like me, it's going to be sort of last minute, sort of crazy Christmas shopping and wrapping presents, right? How about we do this in the run up to Christmas? How about as a church we ask God for a gift? That we ask him for an increase in faith in his sovereignty, right? That we go into 2016 and that we might believe that the things that will happen to us in 2016 aren't fate, they aren't coincidence, they aren't just miseries, that we would believe that those things are occurring because of God of infinite power he has decreed those things for our spiritual good isn't that the case friends how we should realize that such is the power the sovereignty of our god that in the christmas story in the birth of jesus all of these prophecies all of these providences what happens to them they all here in these verses converge and then we'll end with A third thing. We see here the turning from God. The turning from God. So we've seen the need for God in this picture of the corruption of the the taxation in the census. Uh, We've also seen the providence of God and all these things coming together. The last thing we see is the turning from God. I'm guessing, here's the thing, I'm guessing you cannot but have noticed that the Star Wars movie has been uh, released this week and uh, you'll also have noticed that Star Wars fans are crazy (laughs) aren't they? I mean it's like they've been uh, waiting for years for this moment eh? and they'd be sort of counting down the seconds and dressing up and stuff and then finally they're here Uh, the film is here and everyone is very happy about this isn't that isn't that the atmosphere in Luke chapter 2? I mean, in a sense, you could say that all creation has been counting down. You know, all redemptive history, biblical history, counting down, counting down. And to what? To verse 6. Look at it. Verse 6 says, the time came. Counting down to this moment, the time came for what? For the baby to be born. He's here. Now, of course, we have to notice the poverty of the birth. You see what's said, do you? If you look at it, (laughs) the child was born in a manger, a stable where the animals were kept. I know, I know that you are most familiar with that, the poverty of this birth. But I would ask you this year not to let the truth that just glide on by. I mean, think of it, that the Lord of glory was born in a stable. That the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, <laughs> that he so humbled himself that he entered into his creation to be born in a feeding trough. That, isn't it? I mean, isn't it staggering that, that what is it, mild he did lay his glory by? 
I mean, the, the condescension of this is absolutely incredible. But I think more than that, we need to notice why the stable was necessary in a practical sense. So what does it say? Would you do this? We'll end with this, but would you look at the last line here? Why was the stable necessary? There was no room for them in the inn. Um, do you see what that must mean? There was no room for them in the inn. It must mean that the, the owner of this establishment, if that is indeed what it was, that he did not find any space at all for a heavily pregnant woman. Isn't that what it means? And, and doesn't it also mean that nobody in that establishment, none of them, they must have known. But none of them were willing to give up their beds for a woman who was nine months pregnant. Doesn't it mean that? There was no room for them. Do you see what that is? Isn't that just a foretaste of the rejection that the Lord Jesus Christ would go on to face throughout his earthly ministry? Isn't it? Like the rejection and hatred of the Jews and the opposition of the religious elite, the betrayal of Judas, even, even the scorn of his very own family. Isn't it there? Isn't there just a foretaste of that rejection as the door to the inn slam shut on that family? I mean, you see it, right? The Lord of glory, he, he leaves his heavenly host for humanity. What does humanity do? We turn away and we slam shut the door on this family. And so I want to close tonight with a question, a simple question, but for everyone here. Friends, is there a place with you for Jesus this Christmas? I mean, is there a place with you for Jesus? Now, if, if you're a Christian here, is there a place with you for the Lord Jesus Christ this Christmas? Is there? Like we, I, I don't know about your family. Our family, it's all about routine at Christmas. We've got all these little strange habits and things that we do on Christmas Day. You know, we love to have Christmas Day a certain way. You like that? Well, friends, this year, would you add something into your celebrations at Christmas, on Christmas Day? Would you, this Christmas Day, praise the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you do that? Now, if you are part of a Christian family, would you do that? I mean, would you separate a point in your day on Christmas Day, quite simply, to worship Jesus? You know, to, to sit around as a family and to read scripture, read of the incarnation. Would you pray together on Christmas Day? Would you even sing carols and songs and psalms? If you've got children, you will be installing routine into them for decades to come. Will we not make Christmas a, a spiritual day? 
But let me extend that question to those who are not Christians here this evening. Friends, this year, will there be a place with you for Jesus? Will there? Because you see this, this child here that we're reading of. He was born to die. Do you understand that? That he was not just born in humility. That he came to die in humility. Do you, do, do you see that? Do you see that this door of the inn was closed to him so that what might happen? So that he might, through his death and resurrection, go and open for his people the door to glory. Do you see and recognize that? If so, friend, believe in Jesus. Don't turn away, don't reject, but turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. And instead in all the feasting and the food and the festivities, maybe this year you too can be found rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ this Christmas. Friends, let's go from here. Let's go into this week. It's a special week. It's a glorious week. But come the end of the week, let's make sure that we all have a God-centered Christmas. Let's pray.